This is an RNZ podcast. A quick warning. This podcast includes allegations of child sexual abuse, so listener discretion is advised. If any of the details are triggering, please talk to someone. If you're in New Zealand, you can call or text 1737 to speak with a trained professional. All right, Peter? Thank you. Okay. Today is a day of mixed emotions for me, and I appreciate the opportunity to say a few words to you in this relatively calm atmosphere. I couldn't let day one of my release pass without saying something myself. This is the voice of Peter Hugh McGregor Ellis. After being a prisoner for nearly seven years, for the last few years, I've had to rely on others to speak for me. Peter never really liked the media and he was never a fan of the limelight. But on the day of his release from prison, on parole from a 10-year sentence, he gave a rare press conference. It's February 2000. And it is now right that I speak for myself to say at least this. Even though the battle to clear my name is not yet won, I wanted to say a public thank you to the public of New Zealand, Thank you in particular to the parents of children at the creche who have stood by me. Finally, I want to thank my mother and my family. In particular, I mention my mother, who has given the last eight years of her life to supporting me. And I feel that she has served that sentence with me. Thank you, Mum. Take a drink. Have a drink. Peter Ellis is a tall, slim man who towers over his devoted mum, Leslie. He wears distinctive, large aviator-style glasses. His long, dark hair is tied back in a low ponytail. Physically, Peter hasn't changed much since he was sent to prison seven years earlier, back in 1993. There's been a decision in the Peter Ellis child abuse case in the High Court in Christchurch. At the High Court, Paula Penfold. The jury has just delivered its verdict. It's found Peter Ellis guilty on 16 counts of sexually abusing children in his care. and not What became known as the Christchurch Civic Crash Case was huge. Families, a city, even a country, all polarised by shocking, sometimes bizarre accusations of child sex abuse. And it's a case that's still causing rifts. The case has been challenged in courts over and over again in the past 30 years. And in 2022, right in the middle of making this podcast, it went all the way to the New Zealand Supreme Court, making legal history along the way. I want everyone to know that just because I have been released from prison, that the fight to clear my name does not stop. It goes on, and I do not intend to stop until my name is cleared and the truth is out, for everyone's sake, including the children in the case because there was no abuse of children at the civic crash. This is Conviction, the story of the Christchurch civic crash case and how Peter Ellis came to spend years in prison for crimes he says he didn't commit. Hi, I'm Ali Jones. And I'm Alexander Beezer. Now, I mostly work as a filmmaker, and you probably hear I'm not from here. I'm from Germany, but came here about 20 years ago. Looking back through my emails, it was February 5th, 2015, when a friend made me aware of this case. The more I read, the more interested I became. As an outsider looking in, so many things just didn't seem to add up, and so I got hooked. So I've spent years talking to people involved, looking through old archives, stories, TV shows, radio interviews, piles of paper, anything I could get my hands on. 
and I'm still surprised how raw the emotions are around it today. Because what did and didn't happen at the civic crash is still hotly contested and, whoever you believe, it's done immense damage to the lives of so many. And I have to say, it's not an easy story to tell. It's a pain etched into the city of Christchurch. This is the city where I grew up, where I've made my home, brought up my own family. And in fact, I was working in a newsroom when the Ellis case was all happening. When Alex asked me to join him on this podcast, I realised just how many connections I had to the story. In Christchurch, one of the most controversial civic crash, Christchurch civic childcare centre. I can clearly remember when the sexual abuse allegations came to light. Man at the centre of Peter Ellis. Peter Ellis. Peter Ellis. Peter Ellis. For months, it was all anyone in Christchurch was talking about. This was happening in our city. We were living it, but we knew the rest of the country was watching. Peter Ellis guilty, completely innocent. Ripples go on and on and on. Peter wasn't an easy person to get to know. By the time I'd met him in 2019, so nearly about 20 years after his release, he was very private, kind of elusive. It took a long time to build some trust. But once we had, we talked sometimes for hours. It wasn't always easy, though. But I'll see Alex in the afternoon, oh. if that's all right with him. Yep. I need to... Let's just... You just take over and get started because yeah. Peter's energy will run out. Mm. Okay. Not my energy that'll run out, believe you me, it'll be my temper. <clears throat> Does it depend on my questions? Um, no. Oh, Jesus. Sorry. Oh, help. Right, I need some pills. One moment. <clears throat> Peter was diagnosed with bladder cancer, and it was terminal. At times when I sat down to interview him, his friend Stephen was around. Stephen Ferguson was a chaplain when Peter Ellis was in prison, and when Peter became really ill with cancer, Stephen helped him with grocery shopping, filling in paperwork, or pretty much anything Peter wasn't able to do anymore. I was one of the last journalists to sit down and talk to him. One of the things that was very clear to me, he wanted to live and fight to clear his name. In his mind, it was cut and dry. He was innocent. In this episode of Conviction, we'll paint you a picture of the crèche and how Peter Ellis began to work there, and the accusation that led to one of New Zealand's longest and most controversial cases. So let's get into episode one, Black Penis. My mother's losing, you know, slowly but surely going into the depths of Alzheimer's and myself. I mean, I might not be around to even see a result. There's something terribly rotten about it. You know, there's something so obviously wrong here. There is always another side and what I think is really interesting in this case is it was about a city possessed, we've become a country possessed. It's a case that you know so strongly resonates in Christchurch and it's in, it's in the bones of the city I think. It was 1991. On any given weekday you'd find the early birds coming in to drop their children off at the crèche any time from 7.30 in the morning onwards. Not surprisingly, a lot of them were drawn towards their favourite childcare workers, Marie, Paula, Jenny, Debbie and Peter Ellis. Adelaide was one of those children. She loved Peter Ellis. I visited her parents, Doug and Liz Reed, at their home in the Kashmir Hills above Christchurch. Their oldest two kids attended the crash and Doug was also on the crash management committee. You know, they'd go on walks, they'd get an ice cream in, in the park and the gardens and come back and they'd sing songs and you know throw mm. stuff to the ducks and <laughs> oh, you know what could be better <laughs> oh, 
they just used the city as their little playground. They just seemed to do a lot of interesting things. So like some of the others we went to were far more structured. I guess it was a little looser, wasn't mm. it? Mm. There was a lot of ac physical activity as well as, you know, inside stuff. But they did do a lot of jumping around and making, you know, I don't know, they'd make hidey places and mm. just all sorts of stuff that you would probably do at home. But they just did it mm. there. Adelaide, this is Alex here. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm on the phone to Adelaide. She lives in Hawke's Bay now, but she went to the crash from June 1989. What, how old am I? I'm 32. Um, and I, I actually don't know how old I was when the crash stuff. I think I was three or four. Um, I really mainly remember outside. Um, I remember the slide that we used to slide down and someone would put a hose down it and slide into the pool and swings. At the end of the big end, there was a, a wall with some wooden bars, like gym bars, I guess, along it, that I always thought, you know, when I'm grown up, I'll be able to climb to the top of that. And then I went back, and actually I could probably almost touch the top of it with my arm. And they had a dress-up box with some really great butterfly wings that everyone wanted. But I do remember Peter, because he was so fun. When Peter used to do row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, throw the children overboard and listen to them scream, you know, and the kids would all go, ah! <laughs> <laughs> and they just used to love it. I think, mm. you know, part of it was um, Peter was sort of outrageous like that. He'd do hilarious things to the kids mm. and just sort of challenge them like that, and they just, they didn't, they just responded mm. really well. Being outrageous, enjoying a bit of shock value is a bit of a theme with Peter Ellis. Like, I got given a book of pictures taken at the crash, in one, Alice is wearing super short editor shorts with a jumper, the sleeves tucked up. He's poking his tongue out between his fingers, which are spread in a V. Picture it, you'll get the gist. Not a pose I'd consider pulling particularly at a crash, but not surprising for those who knew Peter at a time. The Christchurch Civic Crash, though, was known as a progressive place. It was owned by the city council, but it had a committee of crash parents and council members who kept a relatively casual eye on things just to make sure they were ticking over. It was open plan. Parents could pop in whenever they felt like it. More than 70 families used the crash on a weekly basis, and nearly 30 kids attended daily in the preschool section. That was where Peter Ellis worked. In a small but very noisy cafe not far from the city centre, I met up with another crash worker who wants to remain anonymous. She fears being caught up in it all over again, but she describes what the crash was like back then. We had a massive waiting list. People, the people that really wanted to come there really wanted to come there because of the things that we supported, you know, like the no sexism, the no racism, the no, you know, and then we had kids come that had you know I mean looking back it was pretty pretty it was very very progressive it was the only place like it at the time that I know of in Christchurch it spoke to me you know that we were supporting and encouraging children's free expression and we didn't tolerate bigotry and we didn't tolerate sexism and racism and we didn't encourage kids making weapons and shooting each other. Another family who used the crash lived and actually still does a block away from where it once stood until it was destroyed in the 2011 earthquake. My name's Mary Cox and I'm being interviewed today in my lounge room. And I'm Malcolm Cox. 
Malcolm and Mary Cox were typical of the sort of parents who were using the creche in 1991. I guess you'd say upper middle class. Malcolm ran a business from home and Mary was a nurse and all three of their girls attended the centre. You'd go in in the morning and um, <laughs> you would sign on, but not as I was terrible at signing on. Um, and they'd always had that sign-on book, but I, I was completely slack. I thought, what's the point? You know, they know where Lizzie is, they know who I am. When I'd finished work in the morning, I, or whatever, I'd go over and pick up Lizzie, and they didn't know when I was coming. Uh, and it was a very happy arrangement for us. It was a really breath of fresh air to send your kids there. It was a nice place. kids were happy there. Yeah, really happy kids. Describe the, the, the crash, given that you lived so close to it. The vibe was fine. Uh, these people were professional childcare workers and they had standards and they had programs and they had a culture and no doubt they had a bloody mission statement as well. You want the best for your kids. You want your kids to be safe. You want to be able to feel secure that you can get on with your own job. Um, you want your kids to be happy. You, you, know, you need to be able to afford it. I got the sense... It was a place where Peter Alice was really happy as well. After his release from prison in 2000, Peter moved to Leafield Beach, north of Christchurch. It was near his mother. It's one of those long, windswept East Coast New Zealand beaches with pebbly sand and crashing waves. Much of it's lined with pine forest, and while it can get busy during the summer, it's not hard to get it all to yourself at other times of the year. When I met Peter Alice, he lived in a small, I'm sure totally uninsulated, single-glazed, weatherboard cottage, batch-type place. The village, more of a summer holiday spot, seemed pretty small. Alice's street is a dead end, with a nice park and mature trees in the middle. Wikipedia says it has about a thousand people living there, but that feels a large number to me. I had a sense it was a sleepy place, the sort of place where everyone knew everyone else. Would you like a juice and a pie or something? No, Liz, now we're talking. The first time I visited, Stephen shouted lunch for me and Peter. What would you say? Surprise, Miss. Steak and cheese is on it. Something not bacon and egg. Peter's house is pretty basic, more like a batch, really. Pet stuff everywhere, birds in cages, cat and dog bits and pieces. The decor is eclectic. There's a clown hanging from the ceiling, knickknacks on the shelves, and soft toys on the furniture. I start by asking him about his upbringing. My upbringing was fine. We were kids from a headmaster's school. We learned how to dig three-foot fence posts, holes for fences. We put up fences. We built buildings. We had a half-acre veggie garden. We milked cows. We killed pigs. We killed chooks. My parents were probably voted national. My grandparents probably voted national. Um, I pick your feet up, don't, you know, if you're sniffing along with your jandals, pick your feet up. All joints on the table will be carved, so no elbows on the table, you know, all those things held and held fast. Peter Ellis was one of four children to John and Leslie Ellis. While he was born in Gisborne, the family relocated to the Wairarapa in the early 60s when he was a young kid. There they met Barry Doyle, who lived next door. Yes, well, I was... Um in the teaching profession and got appointed to Gladstone School and Peter's father was at Tewiti School in the Wairapa and that's where um, we met up and we had three years there and I had children of a similar age to um, Peter and so we played it off together and we spent a lot of time in each other's houses. 
I remember one time when he had come from a rugby match, still with mud on his knees, stood in front of a, a beautiful gold mirror that my wife had, and Peter took a piece of lace and he draped it around his head and he said, Mr. Doyle, do you think I look pretty? And I said, you look very pretty. And he said, I said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, a fairy princess. Peter was very upfront, very direct, very open and honest and amusing, even for, as a six-year-old, that was as a six-year-old. When Peter was about nine, his parents, John and Leslie, separated. Leslie remarried a Dutch immigrant named Antonius Adrianus Hartings, but everyone called him Cor. She and the children moved with Cor to Dunedin. He did feel the loss of his father a lot. He was very, very close to his mother, Leslie, and Leslie was a wonderful, supportive mother beyond imagining. And I, But I do think that Peter uh, was uh, grieved for his father in quite a severe way. Actually, maybe just tell me your names, please. Hi, my name's Tania. I'm Peter's sister. I'm Mark. I'm Peter's middle brother. I'm Andrew and I'm Peter's little brother. Peter's siblings live all over the place these days. His sister Tanya lives in Leithfield, Mark made Dunedin his home, and Peter's other brother Andrew lives in the UK. I was on summer holidays and was passing through Christchurch when I managed to catch them all together. Our chat is the first time they've ever really spoken publicly about what happened. I think Peter felt the, the separation from John the, the, the biggest. Yeah, yeah. This is Andrew. He was nine and, and the, yeah. he felt the rejection of his, his dad. Um, Peter, Peter probably is a, a rebel um, and he's a, you know, quite an articulate rebel. So, so he's got a bite to his tongue and, and so Cor is very authoritarian. I think Peter probably takes things in his stride and that, that's probably why he just moves through stuff. Um, or just built walls around uh, yeah, all the negative things and never actually opened up about any of the negative things. About 1970, the family moved again, this time to Motueka, a small town near Nelson, at the top of the South Island, where Alice's stepdad opened a small engineering factory. Here's Mark. I mean, he's obviously a very, very clever guy, Peter. Mm-hmm. And um, But school didn't seem to work for him. Mm, no. Because he, he, he easily could have gone into tertiary education if he wanted to, but yeah. just just didn't really gel. But he obviously sucks up so much information mm. um, because his general knowledge and his understanding of things is, is miles beyond mine, miles beyond mine. And, and so he's and he's very articulate and stuff, but school, school didn't just wasn't a place yeah. that, that he... He really went there and thought, "Well, I can learn stuff here." I just, I just don't think he did. And then he, um, he, we then went down to Twizel, the small engineering firm that mm. um, Core and Mum were running, went bankrupt, and then uh, he, he, he stayed in Mochoika. It's about this time that Peter Ellis started expressing his sexuality. I was already wearing cold eyeliner, probably had longish fingernails there for, for. For a male in those days, I had a stand-up row to get my hair permed at, at the only hairdressing salon. I mean, I've lived with, with eight, eight women and three men in my whole life, so go figure. 
After Alice left school, he drifted somewhat, picking tobacco in Nelson and then going to the UK for his overseas experience, like so many Kiwis do. A few months before I met all the siblings, I met Mark, Alice and his wife Leanne at the home in Dunedin. Can we get you anything to eat? You want a picky or anything like that? Picky would be lovely. Picky? Picky, I don't say no to. I should, but I don't. Both Leanne and Mark remember Peter's UK trip as transformative. Mark said he was trying to figure out who the hell he was. You went there with a girlfriend or? Yeah. So when they first met, she was, he was 17, she was 22. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure he was only there about a year. So when he went to England, he had his, his first gay experience. Yeah, his first that changed his life. I went there, I was there for a year, I came back and my family had moved to Twizel. And uh, my mother was basically waiting at the airport and took me to Twizel. So Twizel's in the legendary Mackenzie. It's tiny, about 1,500 people live there. It didn't even exist before the late 60s when it popped up to house the workers on the Waitaki hydroelectric scheme. Um, and I've had a total cultural shock and... I wouldn't really see eye to eye with my Dutch stepfather, so um, I had a choice. I could have gone to Dunedin, I could have gone back to Nelson. I'd never been to Christchurch, never lived in Christchurch. Didn't know anyone in Christchurch. But it was the nearest thing to catch on a bus. So if I'd gone to two of the other two places, the civic crash case may never have been. There you go I, but for the grace of God. You mentioned... Um homophobia before, now, that time in New Zealand, did that play, do you think that played a part in uh, I wasn't why you got I wasn't up? aware of it. Um, I, it's, it's never been, a, it's never been something I've ever stopped to think about. It's not a label I've attached to myself and, and, and never have done. Um, I was unaware of it as such, it wasn't until, I mean, you, you, you've got to have a look at some of the oiks. It's the only way you could put them, if you like. There was a lot of fundamental Christians amongst that lot. Look at them! Ladies upon them! They're looking into Hades! They're looking at the homosexuals! Don't look too long! You might catch AIDS! Even though Alice wasn't aware of homophobia at the time, it was definitely bubbling under the surface in New Zealand. And the gay rights movement was demanding change. We are citizens of this country! We demand our rights! They're citizens of New Zealand! Homosexuality was still illegal in New Zealand in the early 80s, and as the government sought to introduce homosexual law reform in 1986, rallies both for and against the bill were held. in this country, then you know what to do to those members of parliament next election. And all that homophobia bubbled to the surface. Well, it's against the law of nature, and if the homosexuals just perfected the version with themselves, they would die out in one generation. I do remember the tensions running high, and even years after the bill was passed, some people didn't make much of an effort to even hide their prejudice. While parliament continues to rubber stamp every single deviancy that moves, we're going to have more of this problem as more of these little creeps come out of the wardrobe. Far oh, that's pretty full on. Now, I don't remember Germany being like that in the 80s or 90s, but I don't know, maybe I was too young 
Well, I'm really shocked to hear some of that stuff now, just some of the language, you know, um, deviance, uh, out of the wardrobe. Uh, it's not that long ago. In that last clip we heard, New Zealanders of a certain age will recognise the voice. That was our then Minister of Police, for goodness sake, John Banks in 1993, talking on TVNZ's Home Show. And the long-standing National Party politician Graham Lee was also an outspoken critic at the time. In the case of homosexuality, you got unarguably an unnatural behaviour. You've also got to learn behaviour. And in the context that surely the stance to reason is a predilection to paedophilia or child sex. And it's against this backdrop that Peter Ellis is out there looking for work. Yes, so his family gave me a banana box full of newspaper clippings, court documents, photos, letters, and, you know, stuff like that. But there's also this one. In his job application, he lists previous jobs. Kitchen hand, waiter, head waiter, head baker, contract worker, and also his hobbies like bridge, but also animals and drawing as well. Between all of those casual jobs, Peter would be on the dole, the unemployment benefit, and in fact, this is where he has his first run-in with the law. In 1986, while working nights in a bakery, he was caught and charged with, quote, misleading a social welfare officer, which is basically receiving government income while working at the same time. I was accused of defrauding social welfare. It's a long, convoluted story how it came about. Uh, so the upshot was that I got 18 hours community service. He says accused there, but Peter wasn't only accused. He was prosecuted, convicted, and given two options for working out those 80 hours, either at an animal shelter or at the Christchurch Civic Crèche. By this time, Peter was boarding in a big house at 404 Hereford Street in the central city, and it was an easy 20-minute walk from the crèche. And Peter loved animals, so why didn't he make the obvious choice? Why not the animal shelter? Well, I sort of expected them to take the SPCA one. Peter's mother, Leslie, died in 2022. She'd been living with dementia for several years before that, so I couldn't interview her. I couldn't speak to Peter's father either, as he was also in care. But back in the mid-90s, Leslie had a long chat with author Lindley Hood for her book, A City Possessed. It's recorded on a dictaphone, so the quality isn't great, but she has some good insights into why her son chose the crash over the SPCA job. He said, oh, he said, I can't go there. He said, I'll finish up bringing home half the livestock. Yeah. He said, I'd better take the other one. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I understood that perfectly because yeah. he was always bringing animals home anyway. So I mentioned yeah. him getting out at the SBCA. I knew exactly what he meant. And I thought, well, that's probably a good thing. So, of course, he's as equally as good with children as he is with animals. His brother Andrew suspects, though, that convenience played a role too. He could, could have done the animals' shelter if it had been closer. Well, that's the thing. I mean, he was telling me that it was yeah. basically down to two buses to the animal shelter or one bus to the crash, mm-hmm. so he chose the kidney. Later on, people would see Peter's choice to work with children as suspicious, that it was about access to the children. Leslie always dismissed those suspicions, but even she wasn't super comfortable with his choice. I have to say I've always felt a bit nervous about something going wrong. Jealous of others, the 
parents are really good with their children, then perhaps they feel that things aren't going well with them and their children. He was always involved, plus all the jokes that he used to sort of set up. I thought one of those could have rebounded. Once Peter started at the Civic Crèche in August of 1986, he found most of the staff welcomed him with open arms and the work was easy. He didn't have another job to worry about, so he ended up doing the whole 80 hours of his community service in only two weeks. By September, he was often relieving at the crèche. You know, Peter hadn't had a smooth journey in life, and when the crèche started working for him, it was, it was, life was really good, and he was good at it, and, um, and the kids enjoyed it. And this is Peter's brother, Mark, again. I think he was going off to um, the University of the Polytech and he did a few talks or something. But he was very good with children mm. and very good at the crash. And the kids really enjoyed him. And the, they did enjoy him a bit because he pushed the boundaries and he did a, you know, a little bit of rough play. And, and that's what I do you know, a little bit with my kids. And, and you know, kids love it. I remember him saying it's maybe at times a, bit of a little bit of a catty environment and, and, um, and so, mm. and then he'd be, because he could be quite acerbic, so he, he'd like switch over and, you know, because um, he'd be quite sharp with some of his humour. I told some fairly incredible fibs because there were staff to wind up, female staff members who were um, lesbians and feminists and whatever, whatever, so I said I was... Uh, 10 years older than I was and oh, all sorts of things because I wasn't I was leaving but then I got offered a job I got offered to relieve for six months while someone had gone away to have have a baby so the original two weeks actually was the beginning of this woman's maternity leave and I said ah, well I mean I was only walking up the road what's another six months and then she chose not to come back in February 1987, Gay Davidson became the creche manager and Peter Ellis began formal early childhood education training. In March, he became a full-time staff member. Now, I went to see Gay at her house in Christchurch. She must be in her 60s. And while she's happy to talk about those days, it's not easy. In actual fact, she breaks down in tears at one point. Gay liked Ellis. To her, he was talented, creative and fun, although she did recognise early on that he was a bit unusual. He always pushed the boundaries just a little bit, having fun with the children. Um, but the children seemed to, for some reason, really responded to that and even um, always following him around looking for fun with Peter. They always loved going out with walks with him, enjoyed and just enjoyed being playing around to, with him and doing things. He would get them to create a lot of artwork and they would all really enjoy it. As an adult, looking back, no doubt he would have done stuff that was just, like, a bit outrageous. I'm on the phone with Lizzie. She's the youngest daughter of Malcolm and Mary, who we heard from earlier. She left about two years before the case erupted. Like, he would say things that were, like, adult jokes, you know, that kids wouldn't get. Sort of like, you know, that Disney make movies like that, you know? Movies that are for kids but have a lot of adult jokes in it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I don't personally remember feeling uncomfortable, but I do remember having, like, no... I was not scared of him. There was no, like, um, you know, like, I knew he was just a person that I could trust. One of the things that does happen to me is that children find me. The type of child that 
I actually got on with were the guy gators, the up and gators, the ones that didn't grizzle, the ones that wanted to to learn. Oh, I know what they are. This is our bunch of really naughty sheep. They just keep busting out through the electric fence. An hour south of Christchurch, I met Paula, another former crash worker. Paula began working at the creche in about 1987 in the nursery section. After taking some time off for the birth of her daughter, she returned part-time in 1991 as the outside person. This meant she had set up the outside activities and games, supervised the outdoor play and then tidy everything away at the end of the day. Paula's a sheep farmer these days. And like others, she didn't want us to use her surname because... 30 years later, the memories of the case and its fallout are still painful enough to make her nervous. You can jump on if you like, Alex. I hopped onto the back of the truck and talked to her as they moved sheep from one paddock to another. She's got a few good yarns about Peter Ellis. I remember once he was annoyed with Gay about something. He was cross with Gay. And we'd had all these um, packages and boxes of things, equipment arrive. And so he took all the empty boxes that weren't flattened or crushed, they were still fully formed boxes, and he um, put them all inside her car, like jam-packed it, so the whole car was just chock-a-full of boxes, and she went to go home at night, and she couldn't get in the car. <laughs> You know, so it sort of sounds like maybe they didn't get on, but I think they really did get on. Like, she was really fond of him, but he pushed the boundaries. <laughs> well, that's his wit, isn't it? Yeah, it was part of his sense of humour. Yeah. Come on. Now, can I make you a hot drink? I've got ordinary tea, peppermint, lemon, ginger, rose. Back in the farmhouse, Paula shares her first impressions of Alice. From the word go, I was extremely fond of him. I really, really liked him. I, I could see openly that the children liked him. He was very naughty in terms of, you know, he was a trickster and a prankster and um, he would lead you a merry dance if he could. The families who loved Peter and loved how flamboyantly gay he was, to the point where probably he played that card, you know, a little more often than he would have normally, because our families loved it so much, it was almost like, um, I'll, I'll rise up to this, you know, and I can just be a little bit more, more camp and a little bit more hilarious and funny. For some parents, the fact that Peter was openly bisexual was a badge of how open-minded they were. Here's another of his co-workers, Debbie Gillespie. They liked having Peter there because he was different and he was not a stereotypical male and I think they wanted their kids to be exposed to, to that. They liked the fact that he was gay and pretty out there sometimes with... Um, you know, that, that, I mean, because there weren't many men in childcare in those days, and oh, probably isn't now either no. still, but the fact that there was a male there, I think, was a big attraction for some parents. I have no idea, no idea really if I am a right person, but I probably am. Bronwyn was a tutor for the New Zealand Childcare Association. She worked out of a room above the creche at the Cranmer Centre and helped train Peter Ellis to become a qualified early childhood teacher. And I, 
I, I talked with my family and said that mm. you'd contacted me. Um, you, you need to know that um, from our point of view, from the family point of view, mm. from my family point mm -hmm, of view, mm -hmm. never mind professional point of view, um, the whole crash thing was sort of bigger than the 2011 quakes. Really, it, it turned our lives inside out in a whole bunch of ways. And I am one of those who, um, who believes passionately in, uh, uh, that that whatever Peter might or might not have done, I have no idea or wasn't there, but he did not, none of those things happened at the creche or mm. with the creche children. Mm. And that I'm prepared to go to hell and back again, you know, on behalf of it just didn't happen. Um, and, and also when Peter graduated, um, there were three of us, three co-tutors, if you like, mm. and the other two have both passed on. And it's been pointed out to me by a daughter, everyone should have daughters, um, that actually speaking on their behalf as well is not only a privilege that I'm entitled to, she considers it a duty. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. No Bronwyn came from the Kohangareo movement, their Māori language preschools, and she liked Peter Ellis's hurly-burly tendencies. She felt that some of the Pākehā or white crèche parents were overprotective of their children, too anxious. Today we'd probably call them helicopter parents. What I saw as being a gift became something that he was um, really criticised for. Afterwards, he was physical with the children. He did some of the lying on the floor doing somersaults with the children. And... Um, I adore early childhood, I really do, I still do. And nevertheless, I, I did feel that already at that time that there was a tendency for a tendency for, for students to think of children as being like, like little fluffy bunnies and to be lovingly cared for at all times. There was sort of a tendency, if you like, for caring people to not let children get wet, for instance. Um, which, you know, you look after children, you don't want them um, at risk or whatever, but some of us sort of felt that being wet and dirty wasn't actually injurious to the human soul. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the fact that he would was more physical was something I approved of. By the late 80s, Peter had got his teaching qualification and he'd been working at the Civic Crèche for three years. Now that's actually pretty amazing when you consider he only started there because of his 80-hour community service. Uh, I did have some dirt. I had some fun. <laughs> Debbie was there. She had a sandwich, beautiful sandwich, cut down the middle, you know. And I took a bite out of two of them and wrapped it up. So this... <laughs> I had some fun. <laughs> But so some of these things came back to bite me. <laughs> so it seems Peter Ellis was generally well-liked, but certainly not universally. While we've got these people talking about how he was a bit naughty, a bit of a rascal, quite physical, you can imagine that through another lens, some people saw this as a real problem. Some of his behaviour went beyond playing tricks on his colleagues and there were complaints. About three years before the crash case saga, Peter received a verbal warning from his supervisor, Gay Davidson, followed by a written warning from the City Council. Hang on, I've got this letter here, dated 7th of February 1989. It says he, let me quote, demonstrated lack of support and seeming indifference to children's emotions, for instance, leaving children to cry unconsoled. 
Now, the letter also said he was frightening children with his physical posture, excessive physical force and blatant verbal threats. So we're going beyond a bit of rough and tumble, right? I mean, imagine today how a parent would feel about a kindy teacher using excessive physical force, threatening their child. Oh, there'd be an outrage. And then there was this incident, which was said to have happened in October 1991. An actor reads the letter. Dear sir or madam, we would like to make a formal complaint to the council about an incident involving Peter Ellis and our son at the Civic Child Care Centre. The incident involved being hung up on the fence by his clothes so his feet were off the ground. This was done as a joke by Mr Ellis. However, it was dangerous and frightening and left with a sore back for several days afterwards. This was totally unacceptable behaviour. Signed, Mr and Mrs this particular day, we'd all been outside and uh, it had been wet. And uh, she pushed to the front of the carriage and said, Hang my toes up! So I did with her in it. <laughs> so she's sitting there. Now I did the same to another child. And I put her, I hung him up again. He was little and light. Unfortunately, another child dragged on him and it actually hurt his back and that got brought up. You know, he was in no danger. I, said, I didn't take into account that some other child was going to suddenly put, in a, and it was a big child, and dropped a whole lot of weight on his back, so he hurt his back quite badly. You know, it's interesting hearing both sides, but I think as a parent of a young child, I'd probably have written a letter of complaint too. With formal complaints and a child getting injured, it is more than hijinks, but some kids saw it differently. Kids such as Opal. Opal isn't her real name. All the complainant families, in fact, have permanent name suppression. And for any other children and parents who want to remain anonymous, we've chosen to stick with the names Lindley Hood used in her book, A City Possessed. So Opal remembers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was like a hilarious game, hanging on the back of the coat hose. <laughs> I would squeal with laughter, ah, get me down. <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was fun. And yeah, pick me, pick me. It was always a competition on who got to have a turn. <laughs> This raises an issue that we're going to keep coming back to time and time again in this series. How different people at different times and in different places can look at the same event, the same people, and see something completely different. Well, that's right. I met Peter's colleague, Debbie. She's someone I would probably describe as gentle, very likeable people's person. She sees his behaviour another way again. To her, at times, it wasn't just about having a laugh or pushing boundaries. Um, <laughs> well, I have to say that I was a bit sort of scared of him to start with, a bit wary. <laughs> he, he was a very flamboyant person and he could do a really good camp bitchy when he wanted to as well and that sort of slightly intimidated me a bit. Later on, she tells me... But he could actually be quite mean on the odd occasion. I think there was one time where he deliberately... And I talked to Gay about it, and Gay addressed it with him. He threw a cushion. This kid was walking across the floor, and he threw a cushion, so it deliberately landed in front of this child. So he tripped over it, and he did start crying. I also found this statement in court documents from the actual trial. It's from a teacher who started at the crash in 1991. Out of all the creche workers, Peter took children on walks the most. I can recall one of those occasions when he talked to me about a sexual practice known as golden showers. 
That was something raised with me on three occasions that I can recall. We talked about it while discussing other sexual practices as well. And there's another moment she recalls. A boy named was having a birthday party and his parents bought him a camera for us to take photos of his party. And we took photos of his party and the groups of children sitting around and things. And then Peter came up with an idea of let's shock the parents and put in some stage photographs. So we had lie on the ground on his back and he crossed his hands over his chest and closed his eyes like he was dead. And then Peter placed another child head looking down on him with shock on her face and I took the photograph. When you look at the photograph, I've forgotten a part. We dug a spade into the side where was lying so from the angle I took the photo it looked as if had a spade through the middle of him and was lying with his arms crossed and had the other child standing at the head feigning shock. And we took another couple. I don't recall the exact setup of them And we put them in the middle of the birthday photos so the parents would get the photos, look through them and say, what's going on? And then there was one day when the kids did body painting at the creche. What seemed like a bit of innocent fun with photos taken and given to families would surface again and again. Good evening, Gay. How are you? I'm good, good. Thank you. Yourself? Ah, Yeah, not too bad. I talked to Gay, the supervisor at the centre, a number of times in the making of this podcast, and at one point she gave me access to all her files. Back at my Airbnb, I went through them and found this one note about that day of body painting. I asked her to read it out to me. The day that backs and shoulders were painted was a hot summer's day and quite a few of the kids were running around naked. This is normal in the summer at different times because of swimming or water and sand play. Some of the children had left their underpants on and some had chosen to remove them. The painting of the flowers were trading from the shoulders onto the buttocks was done in the afternoon. And when I saw them, I said I felt uncomfortable with it and was not to be repeated. One parent also expressed concern while another was okay about it. Then there was the fact that Peter Ellis was known to drink. Co-worker Paula picks up on this. It was a problem. It was, and it was one that Gay tried very hard to manage. Um, he would nip down to the pub in his lunch break and um, he used to buy the Mary, Mary Grays was a sweet maker in town and obviously as he walked back to the crash from the pub um, he would buy a packet of their clove lollies, their boiled clove lollies and um, I loved it because he always gave me some. <laughs> I loved a clove lolly. Uh, and that was to mask the fact that he'd been drinking. But you could always tell. I did feel I had a huge amount of trust in Gay. She was an incredibly good manager. She really was. She was a fair employer. She was open. She was a great communicator. If I had been seeing things that I wasn't comfortable with, she would have been seeing them too. I really believe that. Some parents, like Mary, also noted that Peter drank, but she felt things were under control. He never particularly looked like a raging alcoholic, you know, like he he could always conduct himself well and he showed no signs of residual alcoholism. Some parents had a real problem with Peter, though, like Ms Magnolia. 
Miss Magnolia is a name you'll hear more as the story unfolds, but it's not her real name. It's a pseudonym given by Lindley Hood for her book. Miss Magnolia's son attended the creche. Here's her impressions of Alice, and it's read by an actor. I thought he was rough and sarcastic to the kids. I had that opinion just walking through. I talked to Gay about Peter and said that he was too rough with the kids and spoke sarcastically about them. She said, that's just Peter. He doesn't mean it. I spoke to some parents over the Christmas break. They didn't like Peter either. They did say that he was the most popular worker at the big end and the children loved him. I really didn't want to send him to the big end as I felt like it would be bad for him. She's talking about when her son moved up to the area where the older kids were. It was called the big end. That's the part of the creche where Peter worked. I talked to Gay about Peter's alcoholism. She said, don't talk to me about it. We've tried everything we can. Then she said... As long as he does not come to work drunk, we leave him be. And then, seemingly out of the blue, Supervisor Gay received a phone call. I got a phone call from an anonymous person that said her grandchild had a piece of wool, I think it was now, tied around his penis. And I said, who are you? I cannot... Um, do anything with an anonymous phone call. Um, I need to ha have more knowledge of this before I can do anything. And she said she wasn't prepared to do, tell me anything. So I went and spoke to Marie, who was my assistant supervisor at the time. And she said, she, she backed what I thought, that I couldn't do anything with an anonymous phone call. Um, and as I'd seen nothing untoward to give me any feeling that anything could be wrong, um, I, I actually didn't do any more than about that than that. Recalling this phone call nearly 30 years later, Gay thinks the person did mention Peter Ellis, but as she said, she couldn't really do anything with an anonymous call. Anyone could make malicious or false accusations. It wasn't long, though, before things really escalated and snowballed. On November the 20th in 1991, Gay received a four-page written complaint from Ms Magnolia concerning her three-year-old son. We've removed names or used pseudonyms to protect people's identities. To whom it may concern, we would like to voice our serious concerns about Peter Ellis, a creche worker at the Civic Child Care Service. For the reasons outlined below, we have cause to suspect that Peter may have been involved in inappropriate sexual behaviour with or around our son Geoffrey, who attends the crash. She goes on to say, About a month ago, my husband was driving Geoffrey to crash, and Geoffrey spontaneously said, I don't like Peter's black penis. My husband asked him if he had seen Peter's penis or if it was just a story, and Geoffrey said it was just a story, so my husband didn't follow it up. In the bath on Sunday night, Geoffrey made the same comment about not liking Peter's black penis. I asked him some questions about where he had seen it and had he touched it, and he said no, then clammed up. I resolved to ring Gay and then had two very busy days. The letter continues with Ms Magnolia describing a conversation she had with her son. Will you tell me what happened with Peter and his penis? No, I won't. Did Peter hurt you? No. Did Peter scare you? Yes. She said her son didn't want to go to the creche anymore. Do you want to go if Peter isn't there anymore? Yes. Was Peter's penis scary? It was darky, scary. Is Daddy's penis scary? No, you silly mummy. Is yours? No. 
Then he told this story. If Peter came to this house, he would be a monster. If he was a monster and he was here, you'd be asleep, Mum, in your bed, and you'd wake up and see the monster and be surprised. Upon receiving this letter, Gay was panicked and distressed. For us, it was the unknown. It was, we didn't know really what was happening, where this was coming from, where it was being driven. It's just something we never thought we, well, you don't even think you're going to deal with something like this, so how do you deal with it when it happens? It's just, it was awful. Five days after the letter to the crèche, Ms Magnolia called the police and laid a complaint against Peter Ellis. Detective Colin Ede noted on a job sheet, he is apparently homosexual. I think he's a very clever offender. That was episode one of Conviction, the Christchurch Civic Crash Case. Coming up next, we follow the consequences of Miss Magnolia's letter and explore some disturbing trends in reporting on child sex abuse in New Zealand. And I thought, no, I'm going to actually take the bull by the horns. And I sat down and said, has anything bad ever happened at the crash? I was also told not to tell anyone anything. And if I did, then my job would be on the line. What the F's going on? Well, he's opens the door. And he's not sure what I'm, why I'm there. It's much bigger than we thought it was. The culprits are all around us. Thanks for listening to Conviction, the Christchurch Civic Crash Case, hosted by Ellie Jones and Alexander Beezer. Conviction was made by Monsoon Pictures International, with support from RNZ and New Zealand On Air. The series was written and produced with help from Aliki Siantolis, Liz Garten and Tim Watkin. Blair Stagpole was the audio engineer. Voice actors in this episode are Bonnie Harrison, Ayana Piper-Helian and Josie Campbell. Thanks go out to RNZ's commissioning team, Kay Elmers and Tim Burnell, for giving this project the green light, and to Hingyi Kong for designing the webpage. And to Nataonga Sound and Vision for help with some of the archival audio, as well as MediaWorks Discovery, Getty Images, TVNZ, and the Livingston Family Trust. The key image for the series is courtesy of North and South. Conviction can be found on the podcast page of the RNZ website. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and iHeartRadio. Follow the series so you don't miss an episode. A big thanks also goes out to Lindley Hood, Melanie Reed, Martin Van Bainen, Alan Sampson and Ross Francis for their persistent work over the decades. And to everyone who spoke on and off the record, from the colleagues at the creche, the academics, lawyers, creche staff and families. In actual fact, anyone who assisted in whatever shape and form. And finally, special thanks to Peter's extended family, Stephen, Winston and Roger, John, Rob, Annie, Philippa and Jane.